they had watched, they had listened to people dying and suffering, even though all that, and they were like, I'm going to share this story. That I think is far more powerful than I can quote and understand Alfred Kroger. And I think what we do now is try to say, actually, the people he was talking to are the foregrounding scholars of California Native nations. I think the early days of California anthropology really benefited anthropologists a lot more than the Native people. I mean, he uses his expertise to deny nationhood to like the Ohlone peoples. Maybe part of the reason why when I tell people that I'm Ohlone, they look at me and say, I thought all Ohlone people were extinct, which is never something you want to hear and uh, difficult to have to explain to folks all the time. Prober writes a very famous letter that says no autopsy is to be conducted. We're standing by Ishii's wishes on that matter. Others will say we need to do it for science, but science can go to hell. Welcome to Challenging Colonialism, a podcast dedicated to amplifying the voices of Indigenous California. An important note from the start, the producers are two white male educator academics, and these are not our stories. This podcast centers Native voices, and our intention is to highlight the significant work being done by Indigenous communities to challenge ongoing colonialism and to broadcast information about the resistance and resilience of Indigenous California in the past, present, and the future. Welcome to Episode 3, Krober, Ishii, and UC Berkeley. In this episode, we focus on the Berkeley-affiliated anthropologist Alfred Krober, whose impact and whose complicated legacy is still felt today. We will hear from Dr. Kuchiris Baldi, Dr. Brittany Arona, Mark Hilkema, Dr. Samuel Redman, Cindy Alvitre, Alexi Sagona, and Dr. Vanessa Escovito. A final note before we begin, this podcast may contain graphic descriptions of slavery, genocide, and sexual violence. Hey, I'm Kilit, Dr. Kutcher Rizling Baldi Ahoyet. I'm Dr. Kutcher Rizling Baldi. I am Hoopa Yurikin Karuk and enrolled in the Hoopa Valley Tribe. And I'm also the department chair of Native American Studies at Cal Poly Humboldt. Krober and I are almost weirdly, like I know him like in a personal way. Um, I always say to people when they invite me to do talks about Alfred Krober, I'll say, well, I'm going to come in and I'm like going to talk a lot of smack about anthropology and Krober, but I can do that because I've really tried to get to know him. Like I've read his notes and his books and his journals and things written about him by other people. And what I can say is he's he's always been a really well-known anthropologist figure. Uh, he kind of for a long time inhabited a weird, almost idolistic, like kind of rock star space in academia. There was a certain period of time where being an anthropologist was like really, it was like the Indiana Jones kind of figure. But I think that, you know, he he comes into this space like very dedicated to the discipline of anthropology. I would say he really wanted anthropology to be a science when it grew up. It's a thing and he wants it to be a, a real thing. And to him, Western scientific methodologies and views of the world would make it like a real discipline. And he spends a lot of time in California trying to build a leading anthropology program. He wanted to be the father of anthropology in California. And he starts to work with tribes and he writes a very famous book, The Handbook of Indians of California. And people rely on his work for a lot of discussion about who are California Indian people and what are their tribes and how are they made up. 
as a result of his work, we've spent a lot of time trying to almost correct a historical record that was created without us as California Native people. My name is Brittany Arona. I am an enrolled member of the Hoopah Valley Tribe in Northwestern California. And I'm also an assistant professor of American Indian Studies at San Diego State University, uh, where I teach on many different topics as it relates to the American Indian and California Indian experience. My expertise is mainly in environmental justice, water infrastructure, indigenous human rights, and environmental injustice in the United States and California broadly. The fields of archaeology and anthropology are very deeply tied into colonialism. Um, oftentimes, People discuss Thomas Jefferson as being the first archaeologist um, because of his excavation of a mound on his property, Monticello, in Virginia. And, you know, that whole discussion around looking at Native American grave sites as this kind of grotesque inquiry that he was interested in. If you think about that and how deeply tied that is to a lack of agency for the Native people whose lands were not just stolen, but also had this incredible violence of the removal of their gray sites, sacred spaces, funerary objects. And so I'm using some of the language from Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act. Um, and so anthropology, too, is born then of that tie to colonialism as well. Going and looking at different cultures and ultimately othering other cultures in the study of people as they are being colonized by European powers and U.S. imperialism in this country. So that's to say that the, the fields are deeply tied to those issues around archaeology, anthropology, and a lot of it is based obviously with Franz Boas, who is a professor at Columbia, uh, trained many famous anthropologists such as Margaret Mead, Albert Krober, who is a huge figure here in California. But it's not like Native people are asked to be studied in this way. And it's a whole history with salvage anthropology, cultural anthropology, and then this archaeology that arises in this othering of Native people who, to these anthropologists and archaeologists, were disappearing. But it's deeply tied to settler colonial violence um, that's happening at the same time with removal, with moving Native people onto reservations, and then uh, assimilationist tactics that are occurring at the same time. So it's this idea both that we are primitive peoples that exist in the past, and then also be not Native enough anymore through assimilation. It's a weird dichotomy that anthropology and archaeology kind of uh, built itself up in. My name's Mark Hilkema. I am the supervisor of the Cultural Resources Program in the Santa Cruz District for California State Parks. I was a Caltrans archaeologist for 11 years, working for the highway agency, and then I worked as freelance archaeologist both during those terms and after, and have about 40 years local experience in cultural resources. But the field of anthropology didn't exist yet. It was after Franz Boas, um, who was uh, a researcher, I, you know, he founded, I think he was involved with the Museum of Natural History back east, started codifying anthropology as a field of science, and it developed from the field of psychology and linguistics, and branched into the social order of the study of humans, right? Kind of a tall order. Um, you know, so it had its growing pains, but the new University of California at Berkeley 
began to expand their psychology program into anthropology. And one of its founders was Alfred Krober. Alfred Krober is a very famous individual um, because in his day he was an advanced thinker. Now his name's been removed from Krober Hall at Berkeley because he's seen as a colonialist. I am Samuel J. Redman, and I am a historian and a history professor at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, and I'm especially interested in the history of anthropology. Okay, so Alfred Krober is born in Hoboken, New Jersey in the 1870s. His family pretty quickly moves to New York City, where he eventually, as a student, encounters Franz Boas. Krober is curious about Indian languages and Native American languages. So he meets uh, 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 Boaz, his, who becomes his mentor. Boaz really encourages Krober to study the native, uh, the native and, and um, indigenous materials at the American Museum of Natural History in New York, which is one of the largest uh, natural history museums in the world and, and one of the major anthropology collections. So Krober ultimately goes out into the field and starts collecting and, and gathering and, and writing first in the Great Plains. Um, but then ultimately he ends up permanently in, in California. But that influence of um, uh, the topics that he studied, the approaches, the, 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 the sort of a, a reverence on some level will credit both of these individuals as learning the languages of the people that they worked with. That influence carried over into California, as did the museum uh, collecting aspect of it, where Krober helps establish the University of California's Museum of Anthropology, which becomes the largest museum of its kind really on the West Coast and still to this day has some of the largest collections of, for example, California Indian baskets. And Krober's project then becomes this massive survey of California Indians. My great-great-grandmother was an informant of Krober. Like she spoke with Krober and then at, and my great-great-great-grandfather was as well, her adopted father. And they spoke with Krober and it was just, it's just really interesting to read his thoughts on AWOC Mary Marshall and then um, her father, because he says, oh, well, Mary is very supportive and uh, friendly. And then he says, well, her father is very like grumpy and mean. It's like, well, maybe he doesn't want to tell you stuff. <laughs> like, so there's a lot of this kind of uh, back and forth and Krober being like incredulous that a Native person would not want to tell him things about their culture. People still use him as like a foundational idea maker and scholar. But I do think that um, much like any academic, he's a human being. He's made a lot of mistakes and his assumptions about the world were really based on his cultural understanding of how things function and work. And I don't know if it helps to think about like what conversation would me and him have today? Like if I could bring him back, you know, bring him forward in time, have a conversation with him, if he would be able to have a much more nuanced conversation about California Native people. But I will say that his beginnings come from a place of conversation about California Indian people as if they are dying and vanishing and disappearing into the past. And his job is to be the, the sort of white savior of knowledge about California Indians. Uh, and that changes. That changes over time. But a lot of people remember him as this figure that's supposed to be the foregrounding foundational scholar of understanding California Native nations. And I think what we do now is try to say, actually, the people he was talking to are the foregrounding scholars of California Native nations. 
So my name is Cindy Alvitre. I am uh, affiliated with the Gabrielino Tongva community. My direct affiliation is with Tiat Society and Traditional Council Pimu, which represents the maritime communities of the Los Angeles and Orange County coastal areas. I know you've already talked a little bit about Kroeber, but any additional thoughts you have on Kroeber? <laughs> thoughts on Kroeber? Boo! <laughs> <laughs> down with Kroeber. Oh, I don't know. I mean, there's so much to say about Kroeber. Um, I think people really need to take the time. And if we have people who, who are listening to these podcasts or have uh, access to a lot of what any of us who are interviewed on this have to say about it, take that time, make it part of your responsibility of writing these historical wrongs to learn who these individuals were and to know the practices what is that lineage when you're talking about indigenous california communities what is that direct connection the influence and the impacts that an anthropologist with the visibility and the presence central presence primary presence as the father of california anthropology had on present day california indian communities it's complex it's flooded with hundreds and hundreds of stories, and all of them have impacted the people that today, as a result, people are trying to correct, not revisionist history, because you can't revise history, but inserting the facts that will complete this story of colonization uh, within anthropology by individuals, uh, in particular, Alfred Kroeber. And for Kroeber not to participate in what he knew was going on, people, that's one of the reasons why they're, they're not very forgiving of him. A lot of California Native peoples. He is sometimes really talked about as like a nemesis to many California Native tribes because as a result of his refusal to participate in an understanding the political process that he was a part of as an anthropologist, he contributes to the erasure of people, to the displacement of people, to the justification of their ongoing genocide. And I don't I don't think it's up to us to kind of go, did he know that? I, I don't think that matters. But even through that whole process, um, what happened was, and we look at all the publications that we have, you know, um, the Handbook of California Indians, the Handbook of the American Indians, all these, a Bureau of Ethnology. What has been published is their perception of who the people are. It's very damaging in two ways. Number one, when the public, anybody who does research on what American Indians are, California Indians, who were the Tongva, they go in and they say, oh, yes, according to Alfred Kroeber, they cut their hair like this and they had their bangs like this and they practiced like this and they ate like this. And it's a template. And this is a perception because we know in our country that the 1% of the 1% of our society knows anything about Native American, California Indians, even worse. And if this is the information that continues to circulate in 2022, we have not moved. In fact, I think we're devolving. Oh, I think his influence is, is massive. And, and it's definitely the case that uh, the question that you just asked is an incredibly hot button uh, question historians of anthropology debate that question. Um, anthropologists themselves also debate that question, but also California Indians. 
I, I don't think that there is a, a strict sort of uniformity of beliefs about his legacy, but it is clear that it is a, a consequential legacy. He ultimately, by 1925, I should say, the survey results in a massive encyclopedic type of, of book called the Handbook of California Indians that is, you know, on the bookshelf of, of people all around the state for, for a long time. And so when you write this sort of consequential text that, that sort of girders how people talk about native Californians, um, everything that he got right, and he spent lengthy periods of time with some communities in California, and then there were other communities where maybe he only spent a few weeks. And so, you know, I, I understand uh, that he he got certain things right and and, and other things um, uh, wrong in, in meaningful ways. Yeah, I think like a lot of California Native people, I have very complex feelings about Krober. In many ways, his um, archive has been very helpful for me to find information about my family, um, like Awok Mary Marshall, who is my grandfather's grandmother, um, who he remembered, you know. Um, so that's like a connection that I maybe not, I maybe wouldn't have had um, without those archives and learning about her and how she was at least uh, written about, even if it's not like fully accurate. And I asked my grandfather about her too, when he was still alive. And it, a lot of it matches <laughs> about what, you know, Krober was saying, like she was a nice woman and friendly and all these things. And so that connection is actually meaningful to me to have that. Um, but also, uh, Kroberg, uh, much of it starts this kind of salvage, this anthropology that occurs in California that is a very much a violence against us. I mean, he uses his expertise to deny nationhood to like the Ohlone peoples in the Bay Area, um, says that they're no longer existent as a tribe. And so people take that and say, yeah, okay, you're right. Mishmin Truhis, Kanraka Alexi Sagona. Uh, I am here this morning on Ramatush Ohlone speaking uh, lands in Redwood City, California. Uh, and I am a member of the Amamutsun tribal band. And I am currently uh, a graduate student at UC Berkeley. Uh, in the Department of Environmental Science, Policy, and Management. As a, a young scholar interested in my history, California Native history generally, uh, I remember as an undergraduate student reading Krober's books and hearing about Krober in, in the classroom. As someone who reconnected with culture during my college years mainly, a lot of my re-education came about through academia through the classes I was taking, through the, you know, research papers I was trying to write. Uh, and so folks like Krober and other anthropologists uh, were pretty formative in me learning about this, this uh, history. But then later on, coming to realize that there are some issues with some of this older anthropology was very interesting for me because uh, I think as someone in like a teenager, I was pretty naive. And so I just trusted that what Krober was saying was the truth. Um, and of course, hearing later with other Amamutsun community members that, you know, Krober was part responsible for uh, Amamutsun and other Ohlone peoples as being seen as extinct, not existing anymore. And so that was pretty troubling for me. So first, I remember Krober, you know, from the books as someone who was, of course, a, 
a reified figure. If if professors are you know citing him, and I'm reading things that are citing Kroeber, I just assume that he is a, a an authority, a legitimate person who's talking about these things. Uh, and only when speaking more with community members or uh, reading more critical uh, anthropology later on did I come to recognize that there are some issues with Kroeber. And this was even before I came to UC Berkeley. I, I remember going to some meetings. Uh, before I even got into Berkeley in Kroeber Hall. I wasn't too sure who Kroeber was, but I definitely remember that that name, Kroeber Hall. Yeah, one of the first times I went onto the UC Berkeley campus was a meeting in Kroeber Hall. Later, you know, coming to, to realize all the issues with that, I was going to a meeting with the Kent Lightfoot Lab in Kroeber Hall. The Kent Lightfoot Lab and all of his PhD students that have worked in collaboration with my community for many years now, uh, is a new kind of anthropology, archaeology. And uh, it, it was just, I think, kind of ironic that it takes place inside of Kroeber Hall uh, when, you know, it's working with Ohlone peoples who Kroeber thought to be extinct. But Lightfoot, you know, and other folks were supporting the revitalization efforts of our communities. Kroeber was real uptight. I mean, it might be a function of like, you know, he's living through this period of time where I think a lot of people were really uptight in kind of his like cultural existence, but he was a pretty uptight dude. Uh, he had a real difficult time talking about Native women. I think that you notice that in some of the ways he talks about our practices around menstruation. I have a chapter in my book that's specifically about like, let's talk about how Krober talks about menstruation because he uses women's ceremonies as a way to determine which tribes he thought were more civilized and which were more primitive. And he makes this decision that tribes that have very public women's ceremonies where they celebrate a woman's first menstruation and they, they are very, they venerate a woman's place in society are more primitive than those that do not have a ceremony or it's not as public. So he's like, once they figure out how to become more civilized, they start to get rid of their women's ceremony. And that's how he like sort of functionally develops his theories on culture and like what makes a culture and how do they do things. Uh, and he really is like very clear about this in his, in his book. But then you read some of the ways that he talks about our practices around menstruation, for instance, and he can't, he can't say menstruation or monarchy. He calls it um, women's periodic illness or women's physiological functions. Like you can tell that he's like struggling with this thing that Native peoples were open and wanted to talk about, wanted to like share, and yet he struggles with it. And then he uses it to create this very, in my mind, and if we're talking about what's primitive, that's a very primitive understanding of indigenous cultures. I sometimes feel like in the things that I've read that are actual interviews with people with Krober and his assistants, I do feel like sometimes they're a little bit like, you don't get it, but I don't actually need you to get it. I just want you to write this down because I'm not actually doing this for you. And I always say this about the sort of salvage ethnography record. In my mind, California Native people are not sitting down to work with Alfred Krober because they just want to make sure he gets tenure. Like, I think that they are really thinking about how they're building a space of knowledge about themselves and that they want to make sure that those things are coming from them and their voices. And they're thinking about the next generations of people that might need this information. And I, I see that in the records a lot. You see people saying to like Krober or the people he's working with, write this down. I need you to write this down. 
they even talk about sometimes in the archives, they'll say like, someday someone's going to come looking for this information. You know, they're going to need to find this. So I think they're very deliberate about their negotiation of working with Krober outside of just he's paying me money or we have some kind of working relationship or whatever it is. Krober himself, like I said, in his mind, he's doing like real, just real solid scientific research. And he, he really wants it to be like scientific research. He tries to take the personal out of that. And what people make comments a lot about is he's talking to California Indians just post-genocide. And genocide is ongoing and genocidal practices of settler colonialism transform so that they can remain. Krober comes in post the sort of like genocide of the gold rush. And he's all, I, I realize you guys just went through genocide, but I don't want to talk about that. I want to talk about just before that. I want to know about your, about stuff before that. But he's sitting with a, a people who have been through that. And then he's like, but don't tell me that. I don't even want to know how that affects what you're telling me now. And so he, there's people who, he makes comments. There's a few kind of side comments that are made in some of their writings where they're like, Krober comments that sometimes it was difficult to interview people because of how, how much they cried, how, how many tears were shed during that. Hi, my name is Vanessa Escovito. I'm an enrolled member of the Neuralmuk Wintu Nation. I'm also Hoopa and Chicana. I'm tired of Krober. Ain't nobody got time for Krober no more. I'm tired of Krober. Ain't no one give a damn about Krober no more. I'm tired of him. Like, the thing is, though, like I said before, Indian people are like, oh, he's a double-edged sword. And I get that. I'm so thankful for some of the, the, the work his grad student did that he reaped the benefits of her because she was a queer woman, Cora Du Bois. She has a whole, uh, you know, um autobiography about her but anyways <laughs> she went and studied the winter you know how all california indian people have an like an ethnographer like they we all have one ours is cora du bois <laughs> but anywho like i i love the fact that of course i could look back at her you know ethnography and, and find information that maybe we wouldn't have but also at the same time like people knew if you were treating other people bad we knew Krober knew the other thing i'll say is Krober changes and so this is, I think, one of the most fascinating aspects of any story about a, a human being person that's navigating working with actual living people. I, I think I think no matter what, science is supposed to change you. I think if you're a scientist and you do a bunch of experiments with the same set of trees your whole life, you should know those trees. Like you should be changed by them. You should feel like you're in a relationship with them, that you understand them through an interrelationship of how they exist. And I feel like Krober has this realization at a point where he figures out a couple of things. One, he really likes us. I don't think he went into his work being like, I'm gonna really like California Indians. But by the end of it and everything I've read, he like really likes us. Uh, there's probably some of us he doesn't like at all because you know, that happens. But there's a few of us that he's just like, I really like California native people. And I think one thing that uh, we made really clear with him is that like when, when we were working with him, we were inviting him into our communities. Um, people fed him, they invited him to their family dinners. He made, he was close with some of his like collaborators, like to where they would hang out with each other. Um, he, he bought a cabin up here in Northern California in the middle of Yurok territory. I talked to um, I talked to a couple of elders when I was doing my book, and I was telling him I was going to write about Krober, and uh, 
one of them said to me, you know what my, they were like, you know what my auntie told me is that when he would come around, they would say about him that he was searching. He was always searching. But what he didn't recognize was that he was actually looking for himself. So they were trying to help him to like understand himself. And in his mind, he's, he's going to be a famous anthropologist and get tenure. And I think I felt like watching these native people just being like, okay, okay. Yeah. We're helping you to get tenure. That's what we're doing. But really they're like, this guy has got to figure out himself. Like he's searching for himself. He spends a lot of time in Yurok and Hoopa territories. Um, and actually there's a letter from my uh, Mary's son, James. And he says, you need to pay me for this information that we are giving to you. So I also like love those little moments of agency that happen in those archives too. It's not just the story of the taking, but it's also the story of resistance that occurs um, with tribes, which I think is really neat to see. But also his legacy really shapes the way in which anthropology and archaeology is done in California and beyond that. And not to you know, bash on anthropologists or anything. I know many great anthropologists that work in California and do really wonderful and great work, many Native archaeologists. And there is a culture shift, I hope, and I think that's happening. But this perception that we are primitive and the way to understand us is through digging up our bodies and digging up our sites and taking our histories and putting them and using them and publishing them is not quite an equal relationship at all. It's not an equal relationship. So I feel often very conflicted by the fields because I get stuff from it and I think it's interesting, but I also believe that it has caused and know that has caused a lot of harm for people and especially in how our ancestors are in these spaces and trapped in these spaces and not cared for. I mean, really not cared for. Even though there have been many books and, and lots of recent amazing articles written by California Indians and, and uh, other scholars, Ishii is a challenging topic to, to discuss. He was a, a, a Yahiyana Indian who was purported to be the last wild Indian. And this was a claim that was repeated in many newspapers, but also something that, that anthropologists were curious about because he they believed him to be the last living speaker of a language and that he had cultural knowledge, unique cultural knowledge that uh, had essentially been cut off for over the course of uh, the last 20 years in, in California. Okay, so all of this was mythologized in a great deal. But Ishii did, in fact, have a great deal of cultural knowledge and had been um, living uh, using methods that had been innovated by his ancestors for, for, for generations. So, uh, for example, he was uh, considered to be a really talented flint napper. And you can go and see the, the arrows and, and other things that he made in, in museums and, and appreciate him as a uh, an, an artist and a culture keeper and a practical, you know, hunter. Uh, so all of those things I, I think are true. Um, and now another chapter in his life begins after he meets Alfred Kroeber and other anthropologists. 
uh, sort of the authorities, and that by that I mean the local sheriff, but also federal government authorities sort of don't know what to do with Ishii. They don't know sort of who to quote unquote repatriate him to. Yeah, so Ishii was a Yahi man who was a victim of genocidal violence in California. So his family and his tribe are um, victims in 1865 of the Three Knolls Massacre in um, homelands of northeastern California. Um, And basically his family then lives in hiding for um, decades. Ishii's context is really important because it's also happening at the height of genocidal violence in California. So the Yahi tribe experienced this mass amount of violence. Ishii goes into hiding with his family. He only emerges in 1911, around the age of 50, when the rest of his family dies. So they're constantly like moving through um, the area that he's from and hiding from settlers who are hunting them, essentially. The elders were dying out because of California's um, genocide and Holocaust that occurred after the gold rush. And so Native people began to hole up and hide. Ishii doesn't come out till 1911 and encounters Krober and his ilk as they draw him into the University of California as an exhibit. And so he emerges in Oroville and is then becomes this kind of sensationalized figure and is known as the last wild man, quote unquote. So Alfred Krober hears about him and then decides to bring him into uh, the UC Berkeley Museum. And so he becomes something of like a museum exhibit. Um, He lives at Berkeley, becomes a janitor at Berkeley, does demonstrations, and is constantly like asked to talk about his culture, talk about the Yahi. And then Krober finally like persuades him to go back to the area that he's from, which is the Deer Creek area in Tehama County despite his very strong reservations against that. Ishii's very strong reservations against that. Obviously, it's a site of his family's destruction, and he weeps when he uh, sees his mother's grave. It is already an exploitative relationship, right? You take somebody who survives this mass genocide and then puts them into a museum and really just starts studying him to salvage something that Krober and his allies like T.T. Waterman believe are is lost without really giving Ishii that agency to decide whether or not he wants to even do that, right? And maybe he did. I mean, it's hard to, to fully know without having his side of the story also being told. So he figures a lot into this imaginary who California Indian people were, how they interact with museum spaces. You know, I think uh, many California Indian people, including myself, feel very strong affinity for Ishii and also feel a strong protection over him as well and that memory of him and what he went through. And so when he dies of tuberculosis, he is then autopsied, which is against the wishes of his people and his, you know, his belief system. There's just such a lack of agency and care that happens around that. And the fact that his brain is sent to then the NMAI to be studied and then it's lost. And then um, there's a whole book written about this issue, right? Ishii's Brain by Orrin Starn. But it's very, very deeply connected to this violence of both the destruction of Native people 
in the United States and around the world, so indigenous people and in California specifically, and then this really ghoulish collection that happens through salvage anthropology. Um, so this idea that Native people are not Native anymore because they're merging into modernity, that Ishii is the last wild man, and so after that, we disappear um, and become assimilated, which isn't true. And then that we also stop having these connections to our people and places and that they become open for anthropologists and archaeologists to come in and just take and study without having our agency around that. Ishii's story represents a lot of that building up of mistrust as well. So even as like Krober is quote unquote nice to Ishii, he still allows this autopsy of his brain uh, and his removal of his brain and separating it um, from his body, which is so such a violent act after death kind of also then reflects the violent nature of these relationships that happen. And Krober might not have known about it and, you know, was angry when it happened. But I often wonder how much he tried to get that back for his friend, supposedly his friend, Ishii. So I think there's a lot that you can critique about that and how Ishii is related to those issues around museum collection but he was also his own person and lives in this still kind of like mythical space, I think, for non-Native people when he was actually a person who experienced this unimaginable violence, both through genocide and then through the violence of anthropology and archaeology that happened here. He's essentially given to the care of Alfred Krober and the museum where he resides uh, for the next several years. So critics challenge that he is essentially exploited in this way and that he's put on display in a human zoo-like fashion, that he's given really limited agency in the story. And others look at photographs and, and written descriptions and, and see that Ishii in this life becomes quite comfortable. And He's an affable guy and he speaks through translators when he can and he starts to learn some English and hand gestures and uh, gets along well with, with children. And um, there's a neighboring physician uh, who he be befriends and, and they will shoot archery together. And, and he you know, rides around on a streetcar, much to the curiosity of uh, journalists. I think Ishii was big. I think Ishii was foundational. And what, what Ishii was doing you know, with him, again, is almost kind of the same as what I see with other California Indian people. One, I think he recognized Krober as a resource. So, you know, Ishii comes out of, what they would say about him, comes out of the woods, right? Like he, um, but he's, he's basically, he's essentially picked up in Orville. He's starving. They, they like put him in jail. I always find this really fascinating. Their first instinct, they find this, like, this starving Native man who's like, coming into town sort of looking for some way to get help. And they're like, oh, I know, we'll put him in jail. Um, and then they call Krober and they're like, we have this Indian guy, do you want him? And then Krober's like, I'll take him. He's the last wild Indian. Uh, but I think that, again, bringing him in as like a specimen and then watching as their relationship develops into like a really deep, respectful, like a respect friendship. At least that's how Krober would characterize it and has characterized it. We don't exactly know how Ishii characterizes it because 
Ishii doesn't really ever write or speak directly to his relationship with Krober. Uh, I think we can we can guess based on a number of different factors, like they say that his tribe had been massacred and that he had lived through a number of really violent events. And he's negotiating sort of what that means for his life. He's making decisions about not sharing his name. Uh, so Ishii is not actually his real name. He's navigating what he shares. So he's oftentimes saying he wants to record songs or stories. Um, I think that in his mind, he's that's a that's a resource for him to leave behind. I've seen other Native people navigate the archive that way, um, but we don't get a lot about like his relationship with Krober from his perspective. Although I did find out today, in case people were wondering, that um, Krober called him Ishi. It's actually a really badly uh, anglicized version of the word in his language in Yahi for man. But then he contracts tuberculosis and passes away. He dies while Krober is in Europe. Krober writes a very famous letter back to the university that says, no autopsy is to be conducted. We're standing by Ishii's wishes on that matter. Others will say we need to do it for science, but science can go to hell. Unfortunately, the letter arrives late or something, uh, you know, as far as communication breakdown, the, the people who are in California do, in fact, do an autopsy on, on Ishii and uh, they remove the, the brain and they keep the brain. The rest of Ishii's remains are, are thought to be eventually cremated and, and uh, stored in California. But the brain sort of presents this question for Krober when he returns from California. So he writes to Alice Erdlichka, uh, the curator of the physical anthropology collection at the Smithsonian, who is a curious, curmudgeonly, uh, nasty guy, but he has a brain collection at the Smithsonian. And he instructs Krober how to ship the brain to the Smithsonian. Um, so for years, this was sort of a, a, a forgotten episode. Um, not a lot of people really knew about it. Uh, an anthropologist later then published a work really helping to jumpstart uh, interest in this story and activists from California and uh, descendant groups from, from California really did the hard work of putting this together and, and, and putting the puzzle pieces together to figure out the identity of the remains and uh, bring them home to be returned to the, the earth. So it's, it's a tragic story on, on many different levels. I feel bad for Ishii in so many ways that he was so isolated and so alone in his last moments and thinking, you know, I mean, he was around Krober and uh, he was in the, was the Phoebe Hearst Museum um, where he was on display, right? He was created as this living artifact. And of course, this is also during the time of World Fair, so very on par with colonial structures. <laughs> but, you know, he was our only example of a California Indian growing up that we learned about in school. And I remember I was so excited to go to the California Indian Museum and I seen his rabbit skin blanket. And I was just, I don't know why, like I, every time I'd even go back, I would go visit that blanket. And it's funny when, when you grow up, like you don't understand why you are where you are until like you start to learn about the laws and like the, the history of your family. And so my family is from up North uh, Northern California and my grandma, my great grandma met some settler, a minor and got married and started moving down the state. And they ended up, 
living in paradise and Butte County. I never knew why <laughs> until later on finding out, oh yeah, relocation and removal and, and all these other things. And she married a minor. Like I was like, oh my God, I can't believe I didn't really put all that together until I got to college. <laughs> and Ishii was from the, around that area. So they would talk about Ishii and they would say how other people have told stories about how they would see Ishii at dances. He wouldn't come down, but they'd see him up on top of hills, like looking down and uh, not quite fitting in, but you know, and, and not knowing probably that he could maybe not wanting to then finding out his story later on in college like wait because I mean I had this huge story of him like he was the last California Indian because <laughs> I, I was preached this whole nonsense as well right and I guess maybe not even seeing myself as a California Indian then <laughs> in fourth grade but then getting to college and finding out like the just the amount of atrocities that happened to him with Krober and being taken and isolated and how lonely he must have felt and put on display and so, of course, he gets sick um, and passes away. And he asked Prober, I think that was like his last wish, please don't cut me up. Please don't dismember me. And it's a continued disembodiment. Krober makes this excuse that he was away and this other guy that was actually part of Ishii's friend, I forget his name, the doctor who who ends up deciding to take his body. But there was no protections. There was no one there to protect Ishii. There was no one there to hold his hand. And so Ishii gets taken away and dissected and we see this huge thing play out with NACRA about we want to repatriate Ishii. It's time for him to go back home. It's time for him to finish his travels. And we see this disgusting act of, you know, his brain was sent to the Smithsonian. So we fight to get it back. And then, of course, they can't find it for years. And it's just the most grotesque story. I mean, just even in death. And I know that they finally found it and they finally repatriated it, but it was, it's just this huge gaping sore. This whole thing that's happening here happens within a five year time period. So he gets found, brought to the museum as an exhibit, becomes super famous. I mean, like super famous and then dies of tuberculosis all within five years. And Krober has to have kind of a, his like, moment where he has to decide am I am I an anthropologist die hard person who you know I'm separate from this am I am I his friend am I like his confidant am I am I the person that takes care of his wishes and what you see is through a series of letters Prober writes and says don't autopsy him don't take him apart don't do those things even though that has always been our like modus operandi that's what we do this is our friend. And he actually refers to Ishii as his friend. And he says, we stand by our friends. That's what we do. And I, I, I think this is likely a very big moment for him because within this letter, he also says, if people want to tell you, and he's the, the person he's writing to or us in general, that in the name of science, we have to autopsy the last wild Indian. He says in there, he's like, say for me that science can go to hell. And it's such like an important moment because, again, Alfred Kroeber, 1901, Franz Boaz's little buddy would never, I don't think would ever have said that about the Inuit people that were living and dying in the museum under Franz Boaz. And you fast forward to like, what was it, 1916? Uh, so it's 15 years later and Kroeber's like, we stand by our friends. And and I feel like that was a big moment also because then he watches as this system that he's a part of does it anyway. Even with, even though he, I think he felt like 
you know, I'm, I'm a big enough person. I can stop these things. They do it anyway. And they're like, oops, we didn't get your letter in time. We already autopsied him. Here's his brain. Uh, but it's done. And I, I don't know what that feels like when I don't know what would happen <laughs> if somebody who I worked with, lived with, talked with, who told me about like things they had dreamed about, who, you know, who I like ate food with. If somebody just put their brain on my desk one day and they were like, here's their brain. Uh, what does that do to a human being's like space? Like how does Kroger react to, remember my friend, here he is in this jar, his brain's in this jar. I don't know. I, I don't think I'm, I don't know, but it's interesting because he doesn't actually then like send it back and say, bury it with him. And let's, he instead um, gives it to the museum. They put it in the basement. They, and then they don't talk about it for years and years. So I think that's a really foundational moment for him. I think after that, he's more fully contemplating what it means that these are people, human beings. And when he start, and when he does his continued work, I think he's recognizing that he's developing like really deep personal friendships with many of the people that he's working with. People who come to rely on him for like money and jobs, uh, ability to navigate different systems. They rely on him to do that. And he's starting to see like, I can't just extract from them and not help them out. Yeah, just the very idea of bringing uh, a native person and not really compensating them fairly down and marketing them as the last Indian is, is very, very problematic. And maybe part of the reason why when I tell people that I'm Ohlone, they look at me and say, I thought all Ohlone people are extinct which is never something you want to hear and uh, difficult to have to explain to folks all the time that, oh, no, you know, Ishi wasn't really the last Indian. There's, there's other people here, you know, Kroeber, Kroeber was uh, a bit off there and there's other ways of looking at indigeneity. And I think what happens with Kroeber, that's particularly interesting, is he's at UC Berkeley, which to this day has one of the largest collections of indigenous human remains in the country, in the entire country. They're like the second largest collection. And part of that is because they're so famous for all their California Indian stuff that random people would be sending them boxes of remains that they had dug up or had found or had. And there were was a period of time where people would like spend their Sundays going out digging up indigenous artifacts and remains and things from various places. And then they'd send them to Kroeber, but they wouldn't tell him where they got them from or like what the site was, or, or even the day or anything. They just be like, look, we found you some bones. Cause the everyday person doesn't understand sort of like maybe how that works, right? So they keep building this collection while Kroeber's there. Then he, they build it through their scholarly activities and we're gonna excavate, excavate. Then you're talking about they're, built, they're building massive buildings and they're like taking apart whole areas and they would have to dig up those sites so that they could build a giant building. They take all those, put them in a box, send them to Alfred Kroeber. So they build this giant collection. And the case of Ishii um, and people, this will be a conversation continue for generations to come, but was, was he objectified? Was he simply another display? You know, was anthropology uh, and Kroeber was, was this, you know, <laughs> science or sentimentism on his part? Was he his friend or was he clearly to me, um, I'm sure his his ability to continue to rise up the ladder within 
uh, anthropology and as being an esteemed scientist um, was premier and priority over Ishii. No research or academic discipline institution should give itself the excuse that it that it's doing something else and it didn't know it was participating in an ongoing genocidal process. It should understand that all those things are always on the table. And when that happens, like your what's your responsibility now? It's why I think Berkeley, especially, I think for California natives, like we we harp on Berkeley a lot. And I think it's because. Again, a lot of their wealth, a lot of their fame, a lot of like what becomes the foundation of who they are as an institution was only because of the con contributions that knowledge is from California natives could make. And, and so I think they do have a lot of responsibility there for them, what it means to uplift the peoples that they displaced structural violence. You think about California, pre-California, you know, there's native tribes everywhere. And of course, colonization happens. And, and we see this removal of Indian people. And then we see this land, uh, quote unquote, become available, right? It's like public land. And so they create land grant universities, and where they're able to transfer this land to the production of knowledge. Um, and the first university for the UC system is UC Berkeley. This is supposed to be a huge thing for the, you know, California as a state. Right. We're we're investing in production of knowledge and we're going to talk about agriculture and arts and it's going to be fantastic. They put Berkeley on a land grant, you know, land. And so they start moving forward. They're they're doing their thing as a university. Um, but of course, who's lacking in those universities? It's Native people. It's Mexican people. It's people of color. Right. Like we're not allowed in these. So it's already excusing massive amounts of generational knowledge that's not welcomed in these universities. And then, so just the creation of like a knowledge production excuses all of our, our thoughts, all of our knowledge productions, all of our ways of knowing, all of our epistemologies and cosmologies are, are not there and not welcomed. Berkeley has done the most damage for California Native peoples. They have one of the largest collections of Native remains. Uh, they have the largest basketry collection I've ever seen. And we don't have access. They don't follow NAGPRA. I don't know if they've actually made a repatriation. Um, they are the biggest, uh, most egregious university to work with Native peoples. People say that they've gotten sick visiting that repository. I just, I'm glad. I'm glad that the whole structure is shifting to rename Krober. I would say, that's great. Now, are you also giving land back? I mean, uh, you know. We can rename all the things, but like, what does that really mean for how we're uplifting the indigenous peoples of that area? Is Berkeley going to throw a bunch of money behind helping the Ohlone to navigate federal recognition? Is Berkeley helping to stop the desecration of the shell mounds that are happening in that entire area? Um, yes, rename the building. I actually don't even, I mean, I don't even know how, the, the, the weird and beautiful thing about public history and memory is I don't know how many current students you could go up to and say like Kroeber Hall who's it named after and they could actually go like Alfred Kroeber who was an anthropologist in the night you know what I mean like I know there's something important about putting names on buildings because they fight you so hard when you want to change them so I'm glad that in that in their understanding of that importance they're like look let's do something to change this name and let's actually change it but I also want to say that that's a start to a bigger conversation about what that means for you. Because that should be the, the sign. 
that you're ready to have the difficult conversations to rebuild a relationship with the people that you should have centered in the first place in the work that you were doing as a university. I'm happy that they're changing some of this narrative. Uh, I think that a lot of this movement, though, I would like to just kind of point back out that this this turning of colonizers, colonial settler names and statues is because of the Black Lives Matter, uh, Matter movement that happened in 2020, the, the second phase of that, because, you know, uh, I'm seeing a lot of things just in Sacramento, my, uh, where I live, you know, they got Sutter's statue removed, they got Columbus's statue removed from the state capitol during that time. I don't even want to call him Father Saris. Um, that guy, <laughs> they got him, his uh, statue destroyed in in the Sacramento area. So, and I know a lot of Native activists too. Like, I don't want to excuse it just from that because I know Native activists have been have been working to to uh, the renaming of Crowbar Hall. And I'm lucky to be part of uh, this graduate student organization at UC Berkeley called EGSA, the American Indian Graduate Student Association. And during the the time where folks were really, you know organizing to get uh, the Kroeber Hall uh, name changed, AGSA really came together, like wrote things and, you know, uh, really just tried to do some educational um, things for the students, for other graduate students. We partnered with the law, the native law student organization, NALSA, and uh, some folks in the organization, some of the leaders wrote an op-ed and in one of the the Berkeley uh, University publications for informational you know materials, uh, and I also recognize that this was something that took many many years of work. So I I came into you know this stuff as maybe a my second year as a graduate student when Corber Hall you know the name was changed, but this this was well before my time that folks other California native peoples or other just native peoples on campus were really pushing back against it. And it, it culminated during the, the pandemic, during maybe a time when we were really reckoning uh, nationally with our, with our history, the history of the United States. Uh, and, and so I guess, you know, someone like myself was really fortunate to see it removed during my time on campus. Although honestly, I didn't put a lot of labor into it. I think the labor was done by folks before me and other people more plugged in. Um, it, it felt kind of odd when the name was removed because we were trying to get uh, a photo taken for the for you know the Daily Californian, I believe, uh, of some some native students standing in front of Corbo Hall, and it took quite a lot of time to figure out how to get just a couple of people out there with the pandemic. Everyone had moved back home. Folks were really nervous about gathering. So it was kind of like a, you know, when it, when it took, when it was taken down, I wish there were a crowd there, uh, just like the bell removal uh, in Santa Cruz, that event that uh, Amamutsun and state parks and other folks organized um, back in, in the fall of 2021 that had several hundred people out there listening and, and, you know, really bringing that great energy to the space. But here during the pandemic, unfortunately, uh, you know, we had three native students and one uh, native staff person pose for a photo basically. And that was, it It felt like there wasn't any other events where folks were, you know, talking about it more, taking it down. And, and those spaces I think are important uh, because, you know, we can get lost in emails or reading things online and stuff like that, but it, it really means something else when, when those healing moments happen. Uh, coming back to the, the Kroeber Hall today, 
for a while, it was just like an unnamed building. There wasn't really anything outside or anything marking it. I I'm seeing a lot of prospective students on campus right now during this time who probably recently committed to UC Berkeley. And I wish there were some other informational materials out there, you know, for them to recognize, oh, why is this called today the Anthropology and Art Practice Building? And what was it formerly called? Or if they knew that history, that would be very interesting. But I'll end with just saying in the next couple of months, Cafe Ohlone is going to be, which is adjacent to this, formerly the Kroeber Hall, is going to be opening up inside of or in conjunction with the Hearst Museum, which is, you know, one of the other folks who have been dragging their feet with uh, the NAGPRA um, process at UC Berkeley. So I think in a way that space is going to be replaced with Cafe Ohlone and the beautiful you know, resilience of Ohlone peoples and food ways and kind of that celebration uh, and Kroeber's name, you know, is no longer there. So I think that's kind of fitting and I'm really looking forward to, to that opening. I think honoring people who have committed these violent acts and maybe just even naming stuff after people is not like the best methodology of naming buildings because you can critique a lot about things across um, the UC system. I think that the renaming of Krober Hall is good. And also the discussion of Krober's legacy is a good, is a good and important thing to have. And it's a good conversation to be having with uh, not just Native people, but non-Native people as well. It's like, hey, this guy actually did do a lot to hurt us. It's not an erasure of history. There's like this point that people are like, an erasure of history. It's like, well, a name on a hall isn't it really erasing somebody's legacy? And we went through this at UC Davis with John Muir and the John Muir Institute of the Environment. And this really tight hold that these white men had in institutions. But hey, it, I mean, I think it's much more interesting to talk about somebody's complex being in a space and how they impacted these spaces rather than just pretend that it didn't happen at all. Yeah, there's there's Ishi Court that's still at UC Berkeley. Um, I've heard folks, you know, trying to bring up conversations about that, you know, trying to see what what if anything needs to be done there, if anything should be done, what would be appropriate um, with that. But so far, I, I'm not sure if if that has been changed or anything or if there's going to be any change with with Ishi Court. I don't know. I think I could use Krover as a good example to Berkeley as an institution like, yeah, change the name of Krover Hall. He, at the very end, was like, I don't want to teach this class. I don't want to do this thing until it's right. And right now, Berkeley's not right with California Native communities. So, yeah, change it. Like, you can start having different conversations about Krober's role in your history or whatever it is after you've made it right. And it's not right yet. So how are you going to do that part? And then we can have different conversations about Alfred Krober. Krober, you know, makes some reference to the challenges that that Native people are are facing in this way. But he, as you know, historians uh, like Benjamin Madley and and others have pointed out, um, he doesn't fully comprehend the degree to which there's been both sporadic but also systemic in many places genocidal acts committed against Native uh, people and how cultures would respond uh, to, to that and um, uh, deal deal with those traumas and, and those realities, the violence, um, but then also the, the cultural erasure and, and social erasure, uh, the legal systems that are already being set up. 
Um, I, I don't want to cast Krober as being sort of naive and, and misleading of all this, but he is, again, like so many, uh, they're, they're deeply influenced by this salvage model. He's living through a time with them where post-Gold Rush genocide, there's still this onslaught, dispossession, removal, like pushing people in places, the Land Claims Commission, and he's having to reconcile that his specimens these walking, talking, living, feeling, breathing human beings are still being like being attacked. He's starting to sort of trying to, he's starting to kind of like recognize his space in this settler colonial structure. I think it does a number on him. But by the end of his life, he, he does make the decision that he has to politically participate in California Indian uh, issues. And this is a very different thing than I think if, if we were talking about Krober in 1901, 1915, right? Then what happens at the end after he's been through so much with California Native people where he's like, actually, as an anthropologist, I have to politically participate in what is going on here. And I don't even know if the discipline of anthropology has really dealt with that part of it yet. At the end of his life, he wouldn't, he stopped teaching the California Indian class. I read this in a, like a statement that his wife made after he died, that he stopped teaching his California Indian class. He stopped teaching his book, the Handbook of the Tribes of California Indians. He actually did come out and say that the book was, was not anything anymore because it was outdated and he needed to revise it. But the publishers and people at the time wouldn't let him because in their mind, it was more like a Bible than it was like a scholarly textbook that you would constantly update, right, with new information. They also didn't want him to because he was at a point in his life where he wanted to start talking about the complexity of what it meant to know this and what that means for California Indians today. And he had gotten really involved enough with the California Land Claims Commission, where California Indians are being like, almost forced, they're being pushed into settling claims, like land claims with the state of California. And it's not a system set up to actually compensate California Native peoples for the total loss of land and resources, right? So they have all these experts testifying and Krober testifies on behalf of the California Natives. And what he says at this testimony is along the lines of like, I was wrong. Like, the maps I drew, the conclusions I came to, do not portray the complexity of understanding California Indians and land and the peoples of this place. And so you have to redefine it and you have to understand it in a new way. And he's really pushing for more compensation, more like pushing for California Indians to get more in this claims commission. And his own students and colleagues testify against California Indians using his book and work to do that testimony. And because the court, again, there's nothing that pushes them to side with California Indians and Krober, right? They're like the scholarship, the scholarly work, your own work says this, we're siding on that side, California Indians get basically nothing. And this, according to Krober's wife, was devastating to him. I understand that there's no 
such thing when you're writing or being a historian as, as neutrality or, or being objective. Like we all come to this with our own subjective biases and the lens that we'll, we'll understand these things as. But I, I tried to, you know, some people had, had said that salvage anthropology was a really bad force and, and force for, for bad outcomes. And others sort of seemed almost like apologists for it, that, that well, you know, sometimes you hear the argument, uh, well, what if these things didn't go into museums? Would they, would they be lost? And so I kind of wanted to weigh some of those things against one another and, and come up with my own interpretation and assessment. Um, and yeah, I was struck by the, the earnestness and uh, the sincerity that so many people are uh, uh, expressing when taking on these, these uh, projects. Um, but despite that, despite the fact that they care so deeply in many respect, in many instances for native people, um, and they get to know them, they, they live, uh, in with the community, often they're participating in, uh, uh, uh ceremonies or, or singing songs with them. Um, that in some ways only goes so far, right. That ultimately the salvage anthropology project is. Uh, an extractive one that's about um, taking these materials and this knowledge and keeping it in a secure vault in Washington, D.C. or New York or Berkeley or San Francisco and um, essentially de decoupling it from uh, its its original makers. What we say in Hoopa is uh, at the end of a story, they always say high nantic, right? That means like that's it. That's the end. What it actually means is that it reaches so far. Like you don't know where the thing you're telling is going to go, but you're you're sending it out in the world to reach out so far. And I would love to be able to tell, you know, these indigenous peoples that sat with Krober that it reached this far and now it's going to reach so much further. And, and all the things that we are able and are going to do with the, the, the thing that they made sure to carry forward, even while everybody was trying to tell them that they were going to go away or even trying to like kill and murder them, chasing them out, even though they had watched, they had listened to people dying and suffering, even though they had seen the land run, you know, red with blood and they had had to like run and for their lives, even though all that, and they were like, I'm gonna share this story and I'd love to be able to be like, it has reached so far. That I think is far more powerful than I can quote and understand Alfred Kroger. Thank you for listening to our third episode in a season focused on the exploitation of native Californians by colonial science and academia. In this episode, you heard from Dr. Kutcher Rizling Baldi, Dr. Brittany Arona, Mark Hilkema, Dr. Samuel J. Redman, Cindy Alvitre, Alexi Sagona, and Dr. Vanessa Escovito. Challenging Colonialism is produced by Daniel Stonebloom and myself, Martin Rizzo-Martinez. All interviews conducted by me, all audio engineering and editing by Daniel, all music by G. Gonzalez. This podcast is produced with support from California State Parks Foundation. Follow us on Twitter, subscribe, rate, and review, and please share and promote this podcast on any of the platforms on which you may have found us. For more information and resources, please follow the links in the notes. And thank you for listening.